Luke chapter 3, verse 1 to 22. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptised by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptised and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorised to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptise you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptised, and when Jesus also had been baptised and was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us from your word. These are powerful words. They are life-changing words. And we pray that that will happen in many hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 22, describe the ministry of John the Baptist. He is a very important figure. All four of the gospel writers focus on John the Baptist at the start of their gospels. He is the last prophet before Jesus comes, and as such, he has a special place in salvation history. 
All of the prophets pointed to Jesus, but John is the last one, the end of the line. As he speaks about Jesus, Jesus comes. Moreover, John is a great preacher, an eccentric preacher perhaps, if his clothes and diet are anything to go by, but a great preacher. Vast crowds went out into the wilderness to hear him. Many listened to his message. Many heeded it. He was a great preacher. Jesus referred to John the Baptist as the greatest man born of woman. John is a special place in salvation history. Now, the key question for us as we study Luke's gospel is this. What purpose does this episode have in Luke's gospel? That's the key question we ask each week. What purpose does this episode have in Luke's gospel? Now, Luke's particular account of John the Baptist emphasizes certain things in line with Luke's particular purpose. For example, Luke alone of the gospel writers emphasizes the factual historical details that date John's life and ministry. What else? All four gospel writers draw attention to the note of repentance in John's preaching. But for Luke, repentance is a particular emphasis, an emphasis that is reflected in John the Baptist's ministry and through the rest of Luke's gospel in Jesus' ministry, and in the second volume, Acts in the Apostles' ministry, repentance. Now, we're going to study the passage using three simple headings. Let me give you them, and we'll take each in turn. Number one, certainty about what happened and about God's Word. Number two, and our main focus, the importance of repentance. And number three, only Jesus can give spiritual life. First, certainty about what happened and about God's Word. Now, if you've been listening to Luke's Gospel on Sundays, you'll know that certainty is a key theme in Luke's Gospel. Certainty about what happened. Luke is a careful historian who records what happened based on eyewitness testimony. His narrative is thoroughly researched, and that is clear from verses 1 to 3. Now, if you're investigating a Christianity, a good question is, did this happen? Is it true? Because the events surrounding Jesus' life on earth happened a long time ago. We've got to rely on written evidence, written evidence based on eyewitness testimony. That is true of everything that happened in history. So can we trust the Gospels? Are they reliable? Are they factually correct? Luke writes to give us confidence that they are. Just listen again. Verses 1 to 3, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, and so on and so forth. Luke has carefully researched his sources. There is nothing vague here. Luke has interviewed his eyewitnesses. This is what happened. Now, certainty about what happened does not make you a Christian, but for someone investigating Christianity, it is an important step in persuading you to take seriously what is written about Jesus, his life, ministry, and message. 
This is solid evidence that would persuade a jury that Luke is telling us what happened. Tragically, many do not even consider the evidence. The certainty about what happened is no less important when you are a Christian. Christians have doubts. Luke's gospel gives a Christian certainty about the things they have been taught and believed. But Luke also wants to give us certainty about God's Word, so that we can trust God's Word, absolutely. And Luke does that by taking time to carefully show us that everything that happened concerning Jesus' birth and the events surrounding it, and on through the rest of his gospel, everything that happened concerning Jesus' life and death and resurrection, Luke takes his time to show us that everything that happened, God said would happen. God promised beforehand in his word. For example, through prophets like Isaiah. Now, Luke's focus is on the ministry of John the Baptist here at the beginning of chapter 3. And in verses 4 to 6, Luke quotes from the prophecy of Isaiah, written centuries before, which said that just before God would come to save his people, there would be a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And here is John the Baptist doing exactly that exactly what God said would happen. And what is Luke's point? That what happened, God said beforehand, would happen. Moreover, that the details of what happened were exactly what God said would happen. And what does that tell us? That the events of salvation history centering on the coming of Jesus, are in fulfillment of God's promise. It is the revelation of what has always been in God's mind and heart. God rules. God is sovereign. God reigns. God is in control. God is fulfilling his purposes, his divine will coming to pass. And so we rest assured, certain in his sovereign control over all things. And moreover, we can believe with certainty every single word God says, every single promise God makes. How can we be certain? Because God would not break a promise because he is God, yes. Because we believe it is in God's character to keep his promises, yes. But Luke proves it to us. He shows us. He sets out the evidence to convince us that God always keeps his promise. And again, if you are investigating Christianity, this is powerful persuasion to keep looking into who Jesus is. And if you are a Christian, we need the constant encouragement that God's word is trustworthy, that God's promises can be trusted. The promises about what? is still to happen in salvation history, like the gospel going to all the nations. God's international rescue mission is a promise. And the promise is about the return of Jesus. And then closer to our own lives, the pastoral promises 
to care for us through every circumstance of life. It is a precious, precious thing to be reminded and to be persuaded that God will also do what he has promised. And when we do not feel it or cannot see it, we hold on to the fact that we know it. You often hear me quote William Cowper's hymn, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain, for God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. In his own way, in his own time. But God always keeps his promises. What is striking about uh, Cowper's hymn is that his conviction that God keeps his promises has not been destroyed by the circumstances of life, but rather has been proved by them. Let me just say to someone listening that every promise in God's Word, think of a promise, a verse that is precious to you personally. That promise is true. God will keep his promise. Hold on to that even when you cannot feel or see how that could be. Take your comfort from Luke that you can have certainty about God's word. If you are struggling to hold on to that, talk to someone. Let them help you. Let them read God's word with you and pray with you. Now, let's consider, secondly, what Luke wants to teach us about the importance of repentance. The importance of repentance. Now, before that, a cautionary comment. As we've seen, John is the forerunner of Jesus. He has that particular place, that particular role in salvation history. And as we turn now to consider John's ministry, there is a danger we need to be alert to. The danger is that we listen to John and think there is something we need to do by way of preparation before we listen to Jesus and do what Jesus tells us. That's not what Luke intends. Luke wants us to listen to John and through him listen to Jesus now. What is the difference between John's ministry and Jesus' ministry? Well, both preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins, warning people of the wrath to come. It is the same message. Exactly the same. So what is the difference between them? The difference, and it is a massive difference, is that John cannot ignite even a spark of spiritual life in someone's heart. Put bluntly, and these are John's own words recorded 
by Luke in verses 16 and 17. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In other words, even more bluntly, all I can do, John says, is get you wet. Jesus can breathe spiritual life into you. And that spiritual life that Jesus breathes into someone, as they come alive to the things of God and the gospel truths, that spiritual life that Jesus breathes into someone is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's the life. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins is the supernatural work of God. John the Baptist can preach the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but he cannot achieve by his words, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Only Jesus can do that by his Spirit. Only Jesus can breathe life into us. Now, I hope that cautionary comment is helpful. Luke wants us to listen to John, but through him to listen to Jesus, who alone can bring life. Now, as I said in the introduction, all four gospel writers draw attention to the note of repentance in John the Baptist's preaching. But for Luke, it is a particular emphasis, an emphasis that is reflected through the rest of his gospel and in the second volume, Acts. Repentance is an important emphasis in Jesus' preaching and in the apostles' preaching. Just note the references to repentance in Luke's description of John the Baptist's ministry. Firstly, verse 3, And he, John, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In verse 8 of our passage, John speaks about bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. In verses 10 to 14, he describes what that fruit is. In other words, what is the fruit in keeping with repentance? And I'd love to take you right through the Gospel of Luke and Acts and show you the emphasis on repentance. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be disciplined and give you just two cross-references. Let me give them to you. You can read them later, perhaps. First, from the end of Luke's Gospel, when Jesus appears to his disciples after his resurrection, let me read Luke 24, 45 to 47. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. In other words, the message that you bear to the nations of the earth on God's international rescue mission is repentance and forgiveness of sins. It's pretty core stuff. The second cross-reference is from Luke's second volume, Acts. After the Spirit came at Pentecost, 
and Peter preached the gospel. Luke records the response of the crowds, Acts 2, 37 to 38. When they heard this, when they heard Peter preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins, when they heard Peter explaining the gospel, they were cut to the heart. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit, Jesus breathing life into them. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, and this is exactly what the crowds said to John the Baptist, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The importance of repentance and it's crystal clear. It is a very important emphasis in John's ministry, in Jesus' ministry, in the apostles' ministry, and it should be. And is it, though, an important emphasis in every Christian preacher's ministry? Now, what I want to try to do from the passage in Luke 3 is explain what repentance is. What is repentance? Now, you will not be surprised to hear it is not a one-word answer. Repentance is the word used to describe the following. And this, for me, is work in progress, so you might better it. Do contact me and email Repentance is the word used to describe the following, all related but distinguished from one another. And all of these things, I think, are here at the beginning of Luke. In chapter 3, then, amplified through the rest of the Gospel and Acts. Here's what repentance is. Four things. Let me give them to you and we'll take each in turn. Repentance is conviction of sin and revulsion to sin. Repentance is fleeing from the wrath to come by turning from sin. Repentance is turning back to God for the forgiveness of sins. And then repentance is lifetime change in the power of the Spirit. Now let's take each of these in turn. First, Repentance is conviction of sin and revulsion or hatred to sin. Now, John is a direct preacher. No mistake. Listen to the opening of his sermon, verse 7. And note that these are the first recorded words of John. Note that these are the first recorded words of a sermon or a preacher in Luke's gospel. Verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized with him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Not perhaps the most gentle and engaging way to begin a sermon, but we write John off as an eccentric, hard-line preacher at our peril. Luke, our careful historian, affords him prominence. These are the first words preached in Luke and Acts. Why does Luke include this? 
because he wants us to take notice, because he wants us to heed what the preacher says. Thank God for John's directness. There is no difficulty in understanding what he says. He is saying to the people then, and to us, you're sinful, evil in your hearts. That's what he's saying. We all are. Jesus says the same. The apostles say the same. It's what Romans says. What kind of response will this kind of directness that we are sinful and evil in our hearts bring? Well, for one thing, the wolves will appear. What kind of response will it bring? It will cause offense for some. It will cause offense to those who presume on their heritage, their religious affiliations, their badges, their practice, their rituals for their salvation. Verse 8, John says, Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones. He probably picked up a stone to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the... Don't even begin to think that your religion or your affiliation or whatever it is saves you. That means nothing. Surely though John's words, that we are sinful to the core of our being, will cause offense to everyone. But how come many listen to John? It's just like, as Jay reminded us, many will go with the gospel. And what we're being told here in Luke is that many will listen to the gospel. How? Why? Because what John said is true. And when the Holy Spirit takes the truth and applies it with conviction to someone's heart, they do not take offense at God. Rather, they take offense at their own sin. They are convicted of sin. And that means their conscience is stricken by the seriousness of sin, of how abhorrent it is to God. And it leads them under the conviction of the Spirit of God to a revulsion to sin, to a hatred of sin, to a fear of sin, and that is repentance. Seeing sin as God sees sin. Now in verses 10 to 14, John exposes our sinful hearts. He is talking about the fruit of repentance, but in doing so, he exposes sinful attitudes and actions. Read with me, verse 10. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? That's exactly like Luke 2, isn't it? It's when people are cut to the heart. What then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. In other words, the sinful heart is selfish and greedy. Verse 12, tax collectors who came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. The sinful heart is deceitful and dishonest. Verse 14, soldiers who asked him, 
And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. The sinful heart is threatening, harsh, lying, greedy. And when John said these things, some would take offense, perhaps many, but others under the conviction of the Holy Spirit would be and were cut to the heart because they know it's true. They see themselves for the first time as God sees them. No one else sees that. No one else sees beyond the outward respectability. But they see their hearts as God sees their hearts sinful, and there wells up in them a revulsion for the first time in their lives to their sin. They are no longer content with the fact that everybody does it. That is genuine repentance. Conviction of sin and revulsion to sin. Do you ever hate who you are without Jesus? Now, that's a question that is so radically countercultural. Surely it is better to affirm people, to encourage their sense of self worth. Well, not until there is a deep conviction of sin. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just lies. There must be a deep-rooted conviction of sin and revulsion to sin for salvation. Repentance is conviction of sin and revulsion to sin. Then, repentance is fleeing from the wrath to come by turning from sin. Read with me verse 7. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 17. John is speaking about Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What is the wrath to come? What is the unquenchable fire? It is eternal hell. It is the destination of sinful humanity, all of sinful humanity, unless something is done about their sin. Sin leads to eternal judgment. An unforgiven sinner faces eternal judgment, and genuine repentance is becoming aware of that, of an eternity in hell. And with all your might and energies, you begin to sit loose to the things of this world. You begin to sit light to them. And what consumes you is a desire to flee from the wrath to come. You are convinced of that terrible destiny and you flee from it. You know that a life of sin, a life lived independently of God, a selfish life is taking you to hell. And you've never realized that before. But all of a sudden you do. And that's the spirit of Jesus. 
opening your eyes so that you flee from the wrath to come by turning from sin, by changing the whole orientation of your life. This week I've been struck very much by the question in verse 7, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That has struck some fear into my heart. I watched a live stream of a funeral service this week. The minister said God forgives everyone in the end. He lied. It's a barefaced lie. It made me think. Have I warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Have I warned you that without repentance and the forgiveness of sins, you will spend eternity in hell? It is not my warning. It is not even John the Baptist's warning. It is Jesus' warning again and again and again. Repentance appears on all these pages in Luke's gospel and in the Acts of the Apostles. John's ministry, as we'll see, is to point people to Jesus, but there is nothing that John says that Jesus does not see. Jesus says again and again, unless there is genuine repentance and the forgiveness of sins, there is eternal wrath to come. Now, remember Luke's emphasis on certainty. Be in no doubt that if there is genuine repentance and the forgiveness of sins, there is no wrath to come. But be in no doubt that if there is not genuine repentance and forgiveness of sins, then there is wrath to come. Imagine you are in a burning building. The floors below you are ablaze, flames licking out of the windows. The smoke has made its way up to the floor you are in, and a fireman appears at the window to rescue you. Would you hesitate for a moment? So why hesitate when it comes to the eternal fire of hell? It will cost you to take the rescue that is offered you. It will cost you in this life. It will put you possibly among wolves. But nothing is worth holding on to in this world or gaining in this world if it means forfeiting your soul. No sin is too precious to stay in a burning room for eternity. Repentance is conviction of sin and revulsion to sin. Then repentance is fleeing from the wrath to come by turning from sin. And then repentance is turning back to God for the forgiveness of sins. When someone flees from the wrath to come by turning from sin, the Holy Spirit, so moving someone in repentance, does not leave them languishing in the impossible position of dealing with their sin. Try as we might, we cannot eliminate sin from our lives. We can make every effort to change the whole orientation of our lives to turn from sin, but we can't turn from sinning. We can't stop it. So how can we escape the wrath to come? By turning back to God for the forgiveness of our sins. By turning back to God to ask God to forgive our sins. How? By appealing to his mercy and his grace. 
I wonder if you noticed a link between the illustration John used for fruits in keeping with repentance, verses 10 to 14. They all have to do with money, material things. Why? Not because repentance is only about turning from that, but it's Luke's illustration. It's often the illustration. It's often the illustration Jesus uses. Listen to him. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's not about wealth here. The people John the Baptist was addressing were not rich. That's not the point. It's about the love of money. What we worship, turning from sin and turning back to God is giving our allegiance to God, our worship to God. Nothing else matters when you flee from the wrath to come and turn back to God. You don't say, look, have I packed my suitcases? Have I sorted out my pension? Have I got my bonus? Have I filled in the form? Two images come to mind. One, running into the arms of your heavenly Father, being embraced by his outstretched arms. You may have had to leave material things behind you, stuff you used to cherish, but you count it as nothing because you have come back to God. You love him, you worship him, and you want to serve him. That is one image, being embraced by the arms, the outstretched arms of your heavenly Father. The other image is of Jesus with his arms outstretched, dying to forgive your sins. Repentance is conviction of sin and revulsion to sin. It is fleeing from the wrath to come by turning from sin. It is turning back to God for the forgiveness of sins. And then, for every day that is left on this earth, repentance is lifetime change in the power of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is at work in someone's life, bringing them to repentance for the forgiveness of sins, then that person's life begins to change. The Spirit of life gives them the ability to change, and they go on changing day by day, month by month, year by year, as they live as Christians in the power of the Spirit. This is what happens. Now, I'm just going to use John's illustrations. You've got to think of your own. The person with two tunics gives one to someone who has none. How practically real is that? The person who has too much food shares their food with someone who has too little. The person who cheated others because someone becomes someone of principle and integrity. The person who, have a, who has enough is content. Now we're out of time. But how wonderful. At the end of a sermon by John the Baptist, and I hide behind him, he says these things. And Luke puts them at the start of his gospel. How powerful, though, at the end of John's sermon is that he fades into the background as a voice and leaves us with the Lord Jesus. John said, verse 16, I baptize you with water. But one who is mightier than I is coming. 
I'm just a voice. I just get you wet. Yes, this is Jesus' message I'm preaching, but I can do nothing for you, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The fire there at the end of verse 16 is the purifying fire. Holiness. John is gone. Jesus has come. John was only a voice. John could only baptize with water. What is true of John is true of any prophet or any preacher. They, we, can only point you to Jesus. He can baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He breathes spiritual, supernatural life capacity into you. And so I leave you this morning with Jesus. Every one of us who preaches here every week must do that. We really are just a voice. Eccentric and odd like John. If you are not yet a Christian, and all that you have heard about repentance seems to be speaking directly to you, then as we pray in a moment, why not put your faith and trust in Jesus now? And if you are a Christian, and all that you have heard about repentance seems to be speaking directly to you, then as we pray in a moment, why don't you come back to God again if you have drifted away? Why don't you come back to Jesus on his cross? And whatever sin it is that you are stricken by, ask God to help you turn from it. Flee from it. Read Jesus' teaching on the prodigal son this afternoon. It's printed in the service sheet. Let that lead you back to your father's outstretched arms as you turn from sin and turn to God. We will pray about these things. But God has brought us into a church family where we can talk about these things. Can I encourage you to do that if there are issues that you know, because God is speaking to you, that need to be addressed. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray for anyone who is listening who is convicted about their sin and about their need of repentance. So lead them by your Spirit to the outstretched arms of you, their Heavenly Father. And so lead them by your Spirit to the outstretched arms of Jesus on his cross and enable them to lay hold of the salvation that he offers them. Help them, Lord Jesus, to do it now while you are speaking into their hearts. 
And Lord, for those of us who are Christians, if what we have heard about repentance has spoken directly to us, and it has spoken to many of us, then lead us back to you again. If we are far from you, indulging in something that causes you grievance, we run back into your arms. And we are reminded to look up at the outstretched arms of Jesus, who died not only to forgive our sins, but to break the power of sin. May repentance be a daily watchword in our lives, individually and corporately as a church. Help us to talk about these things. Most of all to you, but also to one another. For Jesus' sake. Amen.